Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. It's somewhat annoying, but it's a fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting lots of good ratings increases our visibility on the apps, which helps us build our audience, which lets us continue to attract the great guests that you've all come to love on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Thanks. Today's guest is John Bunzel. He's the CEO of an international textile company. He's a writer and a founder and trustee at the International Simultaneous Policy Organization. Today, we're going to be talking mostly about the book he co-wrote with Nick Duffel titled The Simpol Solution, that's S-I-M-P-O-L Solution, A New Way to Think About Solving the World's Biggest Problems. Welcome, John. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. As we talked about pregame, people have been telling me for a while that I should check your work out. And I did, and I'm glad that I did. This is, I think, a very important addition to the conversation we've been having with so many people about you know, the need to evolve from the meta-crisis that we seem to be caught in and escape the multipolar traps and figure out how we can get on our way to what comes next. I think this is a really interesting contribution to the discussion. And I point people to your website, simple, S-I-M-P-O-L dot O-R-G, if you want to learn more. Great. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I'm glad you like uh, you like what you saw, Jim. I mean, I think it is a uh, uh, an important thing, and it's something I've been developing for uh, nearly 20 years now. So <laughs> I think we've road tested it enough. If we need to really move it forward. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's start where I think your analysis begins, which is that we are what folks in the Game B community and some of the allied groups would call the meta crisis at the present time. It's not just one or two problems, and you you list them off: climate change, freak weather, polluted seas, wealth inequality, religious fanaticism, mass migration, corporate powers overcashing national governments, local wars, on and on and on. There's a very large catalog of problems we have right now, and yet underneath, a lot of them are caused by similar forces, right? Yeah, that's right. It's part of the evolutionary process, it seems to me, that you know we have now a global economy, but we still are stuck with governance at the national level. And that mismatch means that all these problems are arising um, that, that are beyond the, na- the nation, the grasp of any nation state. And um, they're just mounting up. And COVID is just the the latest one in that long, ever-lengthening list. And then you also bring up, which is something that we talk about in the show quite a bit, which is we have to really watch out for game-theoretical multipolar traps or race-to-the-bottom dynamics. And you call out right in the beginning of your book that maybe the only way to get around these traps is somehow to trigger simultaneous implementation in all or nearly all nations that can be brought to, this is your words, to implement appropriate policies simultaneously. You also say, and I think this is something that many of us have been thinking, is that actually one of the things that helps, but our current politics gets in the way, is a multi-issue framework. Because there's trade-offs that can be made in a multi-issue, high-dimensional space that are hard to make on a single dimension, right? Exactly. 
that seems to me one of the main flaws of the of the United Nations COP process on climate change, for example, is that if, if you're only talking about reducing carbon emissions, you know, you've got no way to build in trade-offs. And of course, the big losers on that will then choose not to cooperate or, or they will not cooperate terribly sufficiently. Or they'll hold out for huge payments, which are unrealistic. Well, yeah. I mean, there's all, there's, all, there's all sorts of possibilities for defection. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the simultaneous implementation. I think that's one of the cleverer insights that you have in this work is that, yeah, trying to get people to move one step at a time and trust everybody else. That's a big ask. Yeah, that's right. I mean, first of all, let me say the whole, you know, the whole idea, um, even when I was just listening to you introduce it now, uh, I'm, I'm forever reminded of the fact that that when we talk about all or sufficient nations implementing policy simultaneously, most people would probably think we we, we should be in the loony bin, you know, in, in, in a mental home or something. But that reaction is just a mark of just how far people's consciousness has to grow, has to uh, evolve. Because, you know, when you look at the problems that you just listed, Jim, including COVID and distribution of vaccines or any of these other things, um, we live in a globalized world. And the idea of simultaneous implementation, you know, when you really, when your consciousness moves up to that, what I call that world-centric global level, simultaneous implementation just becomes like obvious. It's like, a, a well, of course, how else would we do it? The other thing about it, though, I think, is that if you talk about simultaneous implementation, about all of us doing something that we agree at the same time together, you create a mental context, a new mental context where we can actually discuss and agree what we can do to get out of the game A game theoretical trap that we're all caught in and move together to this game B cooperative uh, framework. So simultaneity is, is absolutely vital. And actually, you know, it's, it's in, in a sense, it's nothing new. I mean, if you, look at, if you look at an individual nation state, if a new law is passed in the US, let's say, by the federal government, it, it, is, it is implemented globally in the sense that it applies to the entire United States and not just to one part uh, or not another. And it is implemented, it comes into force on a certain date. In other words, it comes into force simultaneously. So, so you know, um, global and simultaneous implementation is actually as old as the hills. Actually, there's a very interesting political effort in the United States right now, which is attempting to use this very interesting process of simultaneity. Let's all hold hands until there's enough of us holding hands, and then let's all rush forward together. And that's the National Popular Vote Initiative. Have you heard about that? I haven't actually. No, tell me about it. It's really interesting. The brilliant computer scientist who I happen to know named John Koza, who's actually been on our show, came up with this idea, which is to get the sovereign states in the United States to vote in what's called a multi-state compact which appears to be allowed by the Constitution, at least in the shadows of it. And the compact basically says that when the total number of states that have endorsed the compact reach 270, which is an electoral college majority, then it will go into force that all the undersigned states will vote for that candidate who won the national popular vote. 
So it's a way to obsolete the Electoral College without getting rid of the mechanism, but it doesn't require anybody to be a first mover. It basically says we're all going to hold hands until the chain of hand holdings equals 270 electoral votes, and then we'll all agree to take this action. It's actually quite brilliant. Yeah, I think I think you know in a, in a complex world or even you know in a, in a large scale network, whether it's a, a country like the U.S. or whether it's the whole world, we now need this this kind of pledge and then you know pledge process based on simultaneous implementation of whatever we agree uh, together. It's the only way. Yeah, hence the name of your organization, Simultaneous Policy Organization. It's actually a deep insight. I think a lot of us have sort of thought about it, but you've called it out in a more clear way. We're also going to talk later about new ways to use our votes, which is also clever. And then let's dig into your fourth claim, which I think is interesting, important, and hopeful, which is that we don't have to get to 51% of people to agree that, you know, historically, that's frankly seldom been the case, you know, frankly, the famously the American Revolution, much smaller than a majority probably. So talk about that a little bit, that maybe the journey isn't as far as we think it might be. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think generally speaking throughout human history, the leading edge of evolution, whether, you know, at any stage, whether it was the Enlightenment, for example, was actually catalyzed by relatively few key thinkers. I think we're seeing the same in real time now at the global level. And um, one of the beauties about Simpol is that it actually demonstrates the, the fact that we don't need that many people. Um, and we, we, you know, because we now have, for example, 100 UK members of parliament who have signed up to Simpol through this new way of using uh, citizens using our votes. That's about, I think it's probably about 15, 16% of the uh, of the UK Parliament, um, but the number of citizens who support Simpol is relatively tiny. So you have a huge leverage potential, and so you know it, it literally doesn't take many citizens to have a have a dramatic effect on politics if we use the right tool. Indeed. We're not going to talk about the tool quite yet. That's going to be the punchline a little later in the show. We'll build the excitement, right, till we come up with John and friends. <laughs> Very clever answer. You talk about that, you know, we have our four claims, then three steps. First, we have to recognize exactly how stuck we are. We have to understand the nature and value of the cooperation imperative, and we have to evolve new ways of thinking. And seeing that enables us to take swift, appropriate, and effective, cooperative, global action. Talk about that framing a little bit. A new way of thinking, I think, is critical. And I, I kind of alluded to it earlier when I mentioned about simultaneous implementation sounding incredibly far-fetched to most people. And that is because our way of thinking is still very what I call nation-centric. You know, we, we see the world through national glasses, because after all, ever since 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia, the nation-state system has been the way we do governance in the world. And we, we, we underestimate the extent to which we think in that way. Our, our way of thinking about global problems even now is, is shaped through those national glasses. It is nation-centric. But of course, the problems we face are world-centric, and so you can't deal with them if your mindset is still stuck in a national frame. And so a lot, a lot of the book is, is devoted to trying to um, help us take the steps 
from nation-centric thinking to world-centric thinking. Because if you don't take those steps, Jim, the rest of the book will be nonsense to you. It, it won't really make sense. Indeed. And then let's go to the real root, which I think you call out as the prime driver of a lot of the problems that we have and sort of the agent by which we are stuck in the multipolar trap. And that's what you call destructive global competition, DGC. Talk us through that a little bit and give us some examples. Yeah, sure. It's game theory. You could call it the first mover competitive disadvantage. So if you take climate change, for example, any nation that wants to reduce its emissions really significantly would have to start taxing its industries. That would put the costs of those industries up, and that would then make them uncompetitive with their competitors in other countries who are not, perhaps not taking the same, are not implementing the same taxes. And so any nation that wants to move first would actually risk harming its economy. And that's why, surprise, surprise, not, you know, not much progress is being made on climate change. You know, you're getting incremental steps in reducing emissions. But, you know, we all know we need not, not just a, a, a 10 or 20% reduction in emissions. We need 50, 60, 70, 80%. And you will only get those really big strides if we have global cooperation. The destructive competition is like a vicious circle. No nation wants to move first, and so nobody moves. And in fact, you know, there's a reverse process. There's a kind of race to the bottom because every you know, in a, in, a, in a world where capital and investment are moving globally across borders to wherever they can make the highest return, nations are competing with each other to attract that investment. Uh, and the only way they can do that is by cutting corporation tax. And that's why, for example, corporation tax levels have, over the last 25, 30 years, have steadily reduced. Um, and so there is a collective action problem uh, globally. Uh, and so DGC, Destructive Global Competition, is really just the term uh, that I give for that, um, for that dynamic. It's got really two, two parts to it. One is the sort of race to the bottom or this this fear of moving first. But the other is what I call, it's almost more important, I think, is what, what I call regulatory chill. Okay, this is that it's not necessarily that, that regulations on emissions or, for example, or on other um, environmental issues are, are racing to the bottom. They may actually be increasing, but they're increasing only incrementally because governments are chilled. They're kind of frozen uh, by competition and by the fear of their economies becoming uncompetitive to making only very glacially slow incremental steps. And so you've got race to the bottom with some issues and you've got regulatory chill with others. But the overall, uh, the overall uh, result is that we've got the problems racing away in the fast lane and our efforts to control them and to get on top of them are just crawling along in the slow lane. And, and that just, it's not going to work, is it? Yeah, let's go dig into those a little bit because regular listeners of the show know we talk fair often about the race to the bottom dynamics. The simple example is 
let's imagine, you know, five food companies all, you know, using good natural ingredients. And then one of them decides to substitute high fructose corn syrup for the natural sweeteners they had been using. Suddenly their costs go down, the addictiveness of their food goes up, and they have a competitive advantage against what used to be five, let's just imagine, nice competitors. The other four don't respond, they're screwed, right? Particularly in a low margin business like the food industry and you have the classic race to the bottom. And then the other, you know, is the crawl of regulation due to too many veto points in our governance. United States is particularly plagued by that. There's so many ways to stop things and all you got to do is get one of them to work. And, you know, if you're a lobbyist or you are someone who can spend a zillion dollars on allegedly public service ads, All you have to do is find one of those veto points to protect the system from, you know, moving in ways that might be adverse to your individual parochial interest. It goes back to Mansur Olson's Logic of Collective Action, which I think is the most important political science book. If you're going to read one book, people, about political science in your life, read The Logic of Collective Action, which lays out why very intense vested interests will so often frustrate the will of a democratic majority because they have the concentrated interest and therefore the, you know, the rationale to spend money and do work to find one of these veto points to stop regulation. Now just imagine that at a global scale and the problem gets even worse. Yeah, I have, I have the book on my shelf right here. Um, But, but, you know, what I'm, I think it's, it's not just, you know, corporate lobbyists sort of trying, you know, throwing a spanner in the works. What I'm trying to say with with destructive global competition, Jim, is that once you let capital loose globally, which which Reagan and Thatcher did with the big bang of financial market deregulation in the in the eighties, once capital moves globally, every nation I mean, regardless of what the corporation, the corporate lobbyists are doing, every nation has to keep its economy internationally competitive. And attractive to that free-moving capital, um, you know. So you've got a double problem. You've got the, you know, you've got the the corporate lobbyists and the, uh, the special interest groups on one hand, but you've just got the dynamic of, of destructive global competition itself. The reason that I gave it that name is is because, you know, it's it's like un- unless you actually can name the problem, you you can't deal with it. You know, if you don't name it, it it's still invisible to you. And I think when when the world can actually start to see that we're all caught in this vicious circle, which is in a sense nobody's fault, then we can actually come together and say, okay, you know, what can we do about it? You know, we can stop blaming and shaming each other, uh, and uh, and instead sort of get down to some constructive work of how to get out of it. Indeed, and you uh, you make the point very clearly that globalization has essentially produced a set of games and influences of this sort, which the nation state can no longer actually manage, right? Because the capital will just move away from you. You know, you give the example of corporate tax rates and you quote a guy from Indonesia, maybe he's a minister of finance saying, oh, you know, ours is 27, Singapore's is 20. If we don't cut ours to 20, all the companies are going to move to Singapore. And with no higher level coordination possible, yep, that race to the bottom dynamic will happen at the global level because there is no level at which that regulation can occur. Not at the moment. That's right. Uh, that's, that's, That's right. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, if you go back in history to, say, the Industrial Revolution, 
the all the kind of negative fallouts of industrialization like you know pollution and smokestacks and you know i mean coming from the uk where it all started you know but all of that occurred within the governance framework of the nation state the nation state was already there to regulate it but at the global level now there is no global state there is no global regulation so we've got a real problem because we've got the we've got the global level pollution and and resource depletion and and climate change and all the rest of it but we have no mechanism for for dealing with that problem and and so that's what simpol sort of tries to provide or at least at least an outline okay we're going to go back to that higher level before that let's drill down a little bit lower level which is essentially the nature of competition and cooperation themselves. You referenced Michael Porter several times throughout the book, and he was kind of the consummate writer about the dynamics of competition in the business sense. I remember reading two of his books back in the early 80s. I think they were called, oh, I know, Competitive Strategy and Competitive Advantage. And they were very good books. And, you know, they really made very clear the nature of competition. And competition can be a great thing. You know, I was thinking about what's a real simple example. Imagine you got three barbers in your town. Two of them do a great job cutting hair. One of them's a real butcher. The competition will eventually force the butcher out of business because everybody will go to the two good barbers. And so there's an example where competition can work very well. And one can argue that the modern world we have with all of our wonderful conveniences and such, much of it came from competition. But you gave a really nice example. Maybe you can tell the story of kids playing a game, how competition without a cooperative framework breaks down. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, if you think of any good sports uh, competition right now, uh, whether it's uh, football or tennis or whatever, you have the players who are competing, but you have the referee and you have the linesman and you have the pitch, which has got white lines on it and all laid out. That's the cooperation part. And so the, the the real aim is to have competition and cooperation in a kind of dynamic balance. And, you know, if what we did at the school, as I describe in the book, is try and teach the kids about this reality. So if you, you, give, if you give a group of kids a, a football um, and you, you say, oh, just go away and play out on the street or out in a parking lot or something, you know, let them go for 20 minutes, bring them back after 20 minutes and ask them, what did you do? Were you competing? And they say, yeah, yeah, we did. The, uh, you know, we competed and Johnny scored and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you said, well, hang on a minute. Before you started playing, you, you had to pick teams, right? And you decided where the goalposts were going to be. And you, you know, you, you, you agreed certain rules. And they said, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, then, then they start to understand that, that competi- you know, healthy competition is also about adequate cooperation and governance. And you have to have the two in, in balance. And so really what we've got now in the global economy is we have a global competition at the global level. That's the global market economy. But you have governance, which is only at the national level. So, you know, that's a <laughs> it's, not, it's not difficult to see why we're in such a mess, you know, because competition and cooperation are no longer in balance. 
Yeah, in fact, myself and many of my friends argue for the concept of subsidiarity. You know, the idea that problems should be solved at the lowest possible level at which they can be solved, right? Absolutely. And the problem here is that this class of global destructive competition seems like it has to be solved at a higher level than the nation state, and yet there is no such mechanism. Precisely. So we can honor subsidiarity by realizing that some class of problems, you know, need to be solved at that level. Yeah, let's now talk a little bit more detail than we did originally about the fact that one of the things that makes this problem vexing, but also potentially more possibly to be solved using your method, is the high dimensionality of the problem. The fact that there are so many different dimensions which have to all be solved more or less simultaneously, but for which there can be trade-offs. Yes. Um, so you're talking about all the different issues at the global level, Jim, or or more about the multi-issue framework that we propose? Yeah, well, it's actually, I, I think, the same thing. You know, the fact that yeah. if it's difficult to solve one problem because it's a pure trade-off, A loses, B wins. If we have N such things, we have many more dimensions for trade-off. You can talk a little bit about some of the examples of what those might be. Yeah, okay. So just to contrast it with the uh, the way we're trying to go about solving global problems now with, with the United Nations COP process um, for climate change, for example, the problem with dealing with any single issue, one, one issue at a time, like we are now, is that you will always get some nations that win and others that lose. And, and the loser nations, of course, have got no incentive to cooperate. And so nothing happens. But if we were to take two complementary issues, say, for example, a carbon emissions reduction policy on the one side, but on the other side, a global wealth tax or a global currency transactions tax, the proceeds you raise from the tax can then be used to pay off the big losers on the climate part of the agreement. So that's a, a very crude example, but it seems to me absolutely crucial because if you don't have that trade-off, you 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 don't have you you can't make cooperation in every nation's interests. And that's what we need to do. We've got to design cooperation in a way that makes nations want to act now. And, and to do that, you've got to have a multi-issue framework so that uh, loser nations can, can be compensated. And so I think you need, to, you need to match a kind of, you need to match the kind of global problems like climate change on the one side with some kind of revenue raising policy on the other. Um, so that in a very pragmatic way, we can, we can get everybody on board. And I think if you, if you do that, if, if, if you can get those trade-offs so that you make cooperation in every nation's interests, then also enforcement and, and uh, verification enforcement measures then also become in every nation's interests. And that, those mechanisms can then also be included uh, in, in the agreement itself. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no guarantee that in a high-dimensional trade-off competition, there's a place where everybody's a winner, right? That, that's absolutely right, Jim. There is no guarantee that what I'm proposing will work. Uh, all I think w I'm saying with Simpol and what we're proposing is it gives a much better chance of cooperation working than the way uh, we're trying to go about it now. Yeah, and I think it also asks for some creative thinking about trade-offs that might not have been obvious. One of my favorites, and I don't know why this hasn't ever floated up, so I'll float it up here, is that at least one way to think about global equity with respect to 
carbon emissions is to give every human on earth essentially a credit for an equal amount of carbon, right? If you live in Mali or you live in Texas, you all get the same amount of carbon credit. And then countries that want to burn more have to pay the poor countries, you know, not yet at a level where they could, even if they wanted to burn that much carbon. And of course, this number comes down every year. And so there's a transfer from the rich states to the poor states. However, one of the problems still confronting the world is that many of the poor states have very high birth rates. And now with modern medicine making penetration there, they have a ridiculously high population growth. And so perhaps there's a big charge against that transfer for people who have any incremental children above replacement. And so then you have those two dimensions can trade off if the countries that are receiving the subsidies will also cut their childbirth rates down to replacement levels or below, then they'll get even more, or at least they won't be surcharged back. So there's the idea of bringing a whole new idea, which hasn't even been thought of as part of the discussion into it, to provide another set of knobs to try to reach this equilibrium where the people on the West can say, we'll do our part by paying very quite considerably for transfer of these carbon credits in the short term. But you guys got to do your share and help us bring population under control in time. Yeah. I mean, although we call it the simultaneous policy, there are no policies in it yet. Why? Because these need to be developed. Uh, and so what, what, what Simpol really is, is a mechanism for delivering simultaneous implementation. But what those policies might be, Jim, could, could include all sorts of ideas, such as the one you've just mentioned. And the whole point is, is to provide a space and, and an implementation tool, which makes it worth discussing them. We can start coming together now under that kind of simple umbrella and say, okay, look, here are the different ideas that we that require global and simultaneous implementation, which we can now actually discuss together internationally to see what uh, we can agree and, and what works best. Yep. And we'll get to that soon. <laughs> so I'm, I'm running ahead of you again. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's all right. That's good. A little foreshadowing, as we'd say in the drama business, right? Another kind of intermediate level issue that's worth talking about before we get to the punchline is, you know, just some vivid examples that you've given about how the nation state has lost control. And most obvious to us in the West was Greece and the currency crisis and debt crisis of, what was it? 2009, 2010, George Papandreou, a very smart guy. Finally, you know, they got a guy in there who thought he could do something and he found out he couldn't do anything. Why don't you tell us about that story? Oh, yeah. That's in a, a TED talk of uh, George Papandreou, where he he describes how he took over, I think he won the election in Greece after the previous government had sort of racked up this sort of massive, terrible, terrible debt ratio, but they hadn't, they hadn't told the EU precisely how bad it had become. They kind of fudged the figures. And then when Papandreou took over, he, he sort of had the unenviable task of going to Brussels to, uh, to spill the, you know, to, uh, to confess uh, that things were in a terrible state. And uh, he, he expected that uh, they could, you know, round the table in Brussels with Angela Merkel and all the other leaders that they, they had time to sort of think about this and discuss it. But then, you know, at about 10 to midnight, somebody bursts through the door and says, well, if we don't have an agreement within the next five minutes, uh, global markets are opening in Japan and, and, and you know, the euro is going to be fucked. And so, uh, you know, they, they kind of had to rush to this decision. Uh, and the, the point of that story really is 
to demonstrate to to readers and to people that you know national politicians are not in control global markets are in control you know destructive global competition is in control not not Donald Trump not Angela Merkel not George Papandreou you know and and so uh, you know again the point of telling the story is bust this this myth of the sovereign nation that we uh, we we are currently suffering from uh, from in our thinking. Yep, and then you then talk about some illusions of how we can change things. And of course, the easiest attractor to those of us living in democratic countries is the electoral illusion. But that won't work. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, this this is what a lot of people don't understand is how destructive global competition has an effect on politics. So people are often asked right now, Jim, you know, how did we arrive in this terribly polarized state where you have, you know, the, 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 the Trump, you know, people taking over the Capitol, um, you know, and the, the, the horned shaman and all of this stuff. And then on the left, you've got all these kind of, you know, the identity politics crowd and the cancel culture. You know, how did we get here? Well, what you have to understand is that ever since Reagan Thatcher, You've had capital that's moving globally. You've had destructive global competition. Every nation, regardless of the party in power, having to keep the each nation internationally competitive. And what that means in practice is that only competitiveness-oriented, more or less neoliberal policies, business-friendly policies are allowed. And so no, no government, you know, whether you vote right, left, center or, or whatever, once they get into power, they've got no choice but to follow that very narrow agenda. And we've had this now for the last 30, 40 years. And that's why people are fed up. You know, that's in a sense why Hillary Clinton wasn't successful, because people just, you know, it's just more of the same old shit, you know. And, and, and it has also meant because parties on the left have had to keep the country competitive, have therefore had to kowtow to business. This is what happened during the Clinton years. They have been unable to really support their core support base, the white working classes, whether they're white, black, or whatever. But the you know the working classes who who would used to see the left wing party as their party, that party can no longer support them because of destructive global competition, and so. Left-wing parties have, have sort of had to move to the right to become business parties. And as a result, their former sort of working class supporters have just become completely disillusioned and fed up with them and have started voting for the right-wing populists, whether it's, you know, the, the you know, Boris Johnson and Brexit or whether it's uh, Donald Trump. And you're seeing the same process happening in, in other countries as well. You know, so... Um, you know the fact that this is this is happening right across the Western world should be saying hello. This is a glo- This is coming from a global cause. It's you know if it, if it wasn't coming from destructive global competition, you wouldn't be seeing it so uniformly across the West. And so you know this is this is another reason why you know we're getting this polarization now right across the Western world, uh, and, uh, and and unless we our consciousness and our, our thinking and our understanding moves up to this world-centric level of understanding where you really get to understand destructive global competition and how it works, you know, we won't solve anything. Uh, and so, uh, 
it really tells us that that starting new political parties or trying to, you know, thinking, oh, what if we just vote for the right party, everything will be solved? That's just an illusion. It, it, it's what I call pseudo democracy. It's it's not real democracy anymore because again, it's another example of how global forces have sucked the the validity out of the national level. Uh, and it's now running riot at the global level, uncontrolled. Yeah, essentially, the forces of global competition have forced, whether they're nominally left or right parties, to be neoliberals. And so people that see what that's doing to their communities say, fuck all that shit. I'm going to vote for Trump. Stick a stick in the spokes of the system. Yeah, because, you know, a lot, a lot of it, I just, you know, a lot of it isn't the margin that swung over to Trump. I don't think it's that they necessarily think he's a great guy or really believe him and all the rest of it. It's just they're trying to put two fingers. Well, in America, you usually use one finger, I think. Don't you? Um, you know, they're just, they're just fed up, basically. Exactly. But of course, unfortunately, under the Goebbels technique, you know, the Trumpians just repeating their lies endlessly, a surprising number of people have ended up believing them, which is kind of strange, but that's a problem. To be fair, you know, you've also got a lot of stupidity on the left as well. You know, the left, you know, in a sense, the, the left has got us into this situation in the sense that the left has failed to, to see what, what I've described in the book. The left has failed to develop a coherent global level political framework. And in failing to develop that, to, in failing to develop something like Simpol, it has left the door wide open to the populace. And now, of course, we got this crazy woke shit running around the West, right? Yeah. Facetiously, I say, I wonder if this is funded by the Koch brothers and Peter Thiel, right? <laughs> it's taken all the energy out of real reform and activating people at kind of their lowest, you know, brainstem identity level in ways that are not systemic at all. No, well, that's right. I mean, I think, I think you know, the, the, the woke, wokeism or whatever you want to call it is, you know, it is in a sense part of the postmodern level of development kind of reaching its kind of dying days of toxic dying days. But it is also, I think, to some extent, a symptom of, of destructive global competition in the sense that if you're on the left and your party can't really implement its traditional redistributionary, you know, high environmental standard policies anymore because of the need to stay competitive, what else are you going to do? You know, you're, you're going you're to sort of look for other ways of trying to gain some kind of power. So you're going to look to identity politics and cancel culture and, and these kind of, you know, diversions from what the left really should be about. Yep. And then that will produce a reaction from the other side, which it's already doing, right? I think there's a fair chance the Republicans will come back if the Dems overreach on the cultural front, when in reality, there's a big majority probably for pragmatic, progressive action. You know, if you combine universal basic income with universal health care, I mean, it's ridiculous. The United States doesn't have universal health care, for instance. And, you know, Trump's voters are the ones that are hurt the most by it, actually. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely, Jim. No, but, but I think what people have to understand, or people who are in that kind of moderate center position, is that there is no solution to be found at the national level. 
or at least not. There's no there's no final solution. You can't solve global warming. No, no. Well, that's right. I mean, it depends on it depends on what the the precise policy that you're 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 advocating. But but in a general sense, you know the the you know the solution is not right or left. It's actually going up to the global level to something like simple because only at that level can we solve uh, destructive global competition and all the the poison that is flowing down from it. Yep, indeed. Now, a couple other things you call out that, oh, sound nice, won't work. The corporate social responsibility, CSR movement. Tell us why that's another dead end. Well, it's, it's, it's exactly as you described it earlier, Jim. You know, the, if you've got the um, five companies uh, producing uh, food and, and one of them decides to use something, you know, a cheaper ingredient, um, you know, the, you, you, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. And, and, you know, corporate social responsibility is, is, is fine as far as it goes. But <clears throat> as soon as you get a competitor out there who, who is, uh, doesn't have the same values, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't cut your costs to, in order to compete with them, you're going to go out of business. You know, and so corporate social responsibility kind of assumes that if we can just get individual corporations to do the right thing, then everything will be okay. But, but that, that excludes the collective dynamics of competitive mar- markets. You know, it's, 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 it's looking, I don't know, but, you know, you, I know you know about integral theory. Uh, you know, it's conscious, conscious capitalism is, is looking at the upper quadrants, if you like. It's looking at the individual domain. But it, it ignores what happens, the, the corrosive effect of competition in the collective domain of, of, of anonymous global markets. Yeah, yeah, you and I have both been corporate CEOs. You know, we know that, yeah, maybe we can be a little better around the edges, but the truth of the matter is co-evolutionary dynamics dictate the game we have to play, right? Exactly. Corporate executives are happy to play by the rules if there are rules, but if there are no rule makers at the scale that matters, it's dog eat dog every time. Yeah. If we don't do it, our competitors will. Yeah, And then we'll be out of business and we won't be able to pay our employees, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and uh, as a businessman, you know, and I think I think it's in a sense no no accident that I came up with the idea of Simpol because I am a businessman. You know, I know like you do, Jim, that you know we we may have very honourable values as individuals, but in the collective dynamics of the market, where we've got to, we've got to stay and keep our companies competitive with 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 other companies who may be in other countries altogether with completely different value sets and different standards. What are you going to do? You know, you've got to stay alive. You know, so it's it's this global dynamic that that we are uh, we are faced with. Okay, here's another one that won't work that you called out: the global justice movement (GJM). I don't think I'd heard it ever called that. GJM, yeah. What I mean by that is all, all the oh, hundreds of thousands of NGOs out there. You know, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, you name it. Their whole modus operandi is is, you know, we're the good guys, corporations and, and business uh, and, and politicians are the bad guys. And, um, you know, that just isn't going to work because, you know, it, 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 work, it, it operates on the assumption that if we just shout loud enough and if we just protest hard enough and long enough, the government will do what we want the government to do. But, you know, destructive global competition means that no government can do what they, the protesters want them to do. 
you know, because it will just make the economy uncompetitive and thousands of jobs will be lost uh, and all the rest of it. So again, you know, the global justice movement, their, their, their approach is, is, is not, you know, it's just simply not going to work in a, in a globalized environment. And um, although they, they do recognize to some extent, you know, race to the bottom and, and, and the, the problem of, of destructive global competition, they generally tend to see it as just another global problem alongside all the others. And, and so it then be, kind of becomes invisible. They can't seem to see that destructive global competition is the mother of all problems that prevents solutions to any of these things, whether it's, you know, uh, climate change or, or, you know, it's dry, you know, it's driving all of these problems. And so unless you deal with destructive global competition, unless you prioritize that as the key issue that we have to solve, you're not going to solve anything else. You know, not going to solve any of the other global problems that, that feed off of it. Yeah. You know, a perfect example was Occupy Wall Street. You know, it happened during the Obama administration, which one would have thought would have been at least somewhat open to the ideas. Not a goddamn thing happened because it couldn't. No, exactly, exactly, and and you know this is this is <laughs> I remember I remember actually there was a during the Occupy thing there was there was uh, they they camped out in front of St Paul's Cathedral in London, and I remember one of these reporters I think from the BBC or somebody going around the the encampment and interviewing some of the protesters or the occupiers, and uh, yeah, I think it was in about October or November one of these protesters says. Well, I'll camp here until Christmas if that's what it takes to bring down capitalism. <laughs> you know, and I just thought, oh my God, you've just got no, no idea. You know, and, and these people, they are they're they're lovely people and they've got, you know, they've got good hearts and great intentions, but they don't have yet have the thinking, um, uh, you know, the, the, the world centric thinking required to actually develop a coherent. Uh, political response, uh, global political response to uh, to destructive global competition, which is the key issue that's standing in the way of everything. Yeah, the punches just aren't strong enough, frankly. As you can imagine, inbounds fairly regularly with somebody's harebrained scheme to save the world. And I look at it and go, punch ain't near strong enough, dude, or you're punching at the wrong thing. And, and they are, you know, they're, they're, they're into this blame, blaming and shaming of governments and corporations, which, of course, is very energizing and it, and it means that they can probably raise funds and so, and so forth because it's a, a very simple us and them, you know, good versus evil kind of narrative. But, um, you know, Simpol is really saying, look, we're all caught in this. Um, you know, some of us are, are, are high up and, and doing quite well. Others are at the bottom. But even the people at the top don't have the power to change anything because they're stuck in it too, you know. Uh, and so um, when we stop blaming and shaming each other and start to see that we're all caught in this vicious circle, we can actually move to a much more productive, cooperative, uh, collaborative, positive approach uh, to, uh, to solving the problems that face us. Yeah. You know, there's just this ineffective feel-good stuff, which I've taken to call LARPing revolution, live-action role-playing, you know, the kind of people that dress up in Star Trek costumes. And <laughs> unfortunately, Occupy was that, and these clowns and the Trumpian insurrectionary riots also fit perfectly. LARPing revolution. Yeah. It's like, 
dude, haven't you ever, you know, read your Machiavelli or your Mao or something? Come on now. This, this shit ain't nothing. This isn't going to get it done. You know, let's get more serious. So now let's take a turn. Tell us now, finally, about what is simple? What is your insight on how to get out of the destructive global competitive trap, which is the generator function for an awful lot of what's wrong with our world? Yeah, okay. Well, there are basically three aspects of Simpol. One is simultaneous implementation. If all the sufficient nations can be brought to implement solutions simultaneously, no nation need lose out. Uh, all nations would win. So that, that's, the, that's the first point. Second is this other one that we talked about earlier, the multi-issue framework. Um, with Simpol, we would be talking about two or more complementary issues being implemented simultaneously. What we're actually talking about, Jim, is not all global problems being solved simultaneously on the same day. That would be crazy. But we're talking about like a series of multi-issue agreements, Simpol 1, Simpol 2, Simpol 3, you know, perhaps implemented two or three years apart. So the multi, multi-issue framework means that what a nation loses on one issue, it can gain on another. Uh, and thus, action becomes in, their inter- in every nation's interests. Well, as we pointed out before, no guarantee. Yeah, there's no guarantee. But yeah, another aspect is that Simpol would contain detailed agreed policies, not just agreements on targets. Now, this is another problem you have with the UN process, the UN COP process, is that it's all about agreeing targets. But if no individual nation knows exactly what policies the other nations are going to implement to achieve those targets, you still maintain the state of uncertainty because no nation knows exactly what every other nation is going to do. And so all nations continue to fear for the competitiveness of their economies. And so nothing much happens. So with Simpol, we would be talking about detailed policy agreements. Every nation would know exactly what every other nation was going to implement, and it would have all been agreed in advance prior to implementation. Is that actually wise on something like climate change? Because it may well be that, you know, what's the appropriate technology in a country like Norway with lots of fast mountain streams and a small population is not necessarily the right solution for a flat country with lots of people like China. So it's getting into the implementations really right, or should it be firmly enforced commitments to reach levels of, let's say, greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because that's another point. Because what we're talking about with Simpol is not every nation doing the same thing. What we're talking about is every nation knowing what precisely other nations are going to do so that they understand uh, what the, the, the consequences for their competitiveness is going to be. So, for example, if, there was, uh, uh, if it was agreed that there was going to be an increase in corporation tax, we're not talking about every nation having the same level of corporation tax. We're talking about every nation agreeing to increase by the same proportional amount as it were. So, you know, it's a little bit like in an individual country now, you have progressive taxation where the rich pay more, the poor, the poor pay less or nothing at all. Um, it's the same principle, but it would be applied globally. So we're not talking about a one-size-fits-all policy. We're talking about graduated approaches, different approaches in different countries. But the difference would be that it would be agreed and every country would know what every other country was going to be doing. 
rather than just saying, oh, well, we agree this target of X and nobody knows what, what every nation is going to actually do to achieve it. So that, that's, that's, that's uh, another difference. So the final and I think the most interesting aspect of Simpol is how we can use our votes in a new way to actually drive our, gov- our politicians and governments towards implementing the simultaneous policy. So, you know, at the moment, when our governments go off to the United Nations or to some conference, we citizens have no way of exerting any kind of electoral pressure uh, on, the, on our politicians to make sure they do reach an agreement uh, and that there's a cost if they don't. So, you know, that, that there is no, you know, if, if politicians don't come to an agreement, there is no cost for them to, to pay. They come back and they just say, well, no, we didn't reach an agreement because it wasn't in the national interest. You know, and then everyone just says, well, what do we do? Nothing, you know. With Simpol, what we are doing, when citizens sign on to Simpol, they're basically committing to giving strong preference at all future national elections to politicians who've signed up to implement Simpol to the probable exclusion of those that haven't. Okay, so you're, it's about giving preference to politicians that have signed on to implementing Simpol. And that sounds kind of quite benign and, and weak in some senses, but it's actually incredibly powerful because in many, many um, elections uh, and in, in many parliamentary seats around the world, elections are being won and lost on very fine margins. And so it doesn't take many people to say, well, look, I'm going to be voting for any of you that signs up to Simpol. It doesn't take many citizens to be you know, forming that kind of voting block to make it in the vital survival interests of all politicians uh, in that contest to sign up. And we've actually seen that happen in, in a number of cases, um, particularly in the UK. Uh, there are some uh, parliamentary seats where um, you know, the, the, the um, election, previous elections were lost on maybe like, like 150 votes, right? And um, if we get one politician to sign, maybe we get the Green Party candidate to sign up. And then we, uh, we then inform his competitors that, you know, the Green Party candidate signed up. Why put yourself at a competitive disadvantage? And then, of course, the Liberal Democrat candidate signs up. And then the Labour Party candidate signs up. And then the Conservative Party candidate signs up. Why? Because they've got no choice. And, uh, of course, we never, t- we never tell them how many supporters we have in their area. Um, so we keep them guessing. Until you have enough, then you do tell them. That would be my advice. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll decide when the time's right. <laughs> yeah. When it's three men in a bathtub, then no, you don't talk about it. <laughs> but when it's six million, then hell yes, you tell them. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and, and it's very powerful, you know, and, and uh, this is how we've actually managed to get, you know, like I said, in over 100 MPs in the UK have signed up. They come from right across the party political spectrum, most of them Green, you know, Labour, Liberal, Democrat, but we have a few Conservatives as well. And we have a growing number in the Irish Parliament, in the German Parliament, in the European Union uh, Parliament, and in one or two others around the world as well. So the process is, is already rolling, but it, it, it obviously it, it can't grow unless we have more citizens signing on to make it clear to our political representatives that they better sign up to this or, um, you know, they, they risk 
losing uh, our votes to their competitors who signed up instead. Yeah, very, very clever. As I read this thing, there were two things that jumped out at me as truly contributions. First was you know, the focus on the destructive global competition as the generator function for much of what's wrong with the world. Not everything, but much. And the second was this clever, clever hack, particularly, as you pointed out, works best in first-past-the-post countries like the UK, Canada, US, where you know there's pretty strong constitutional forces towards two parties. Very difficult to get a successful third party. Canadians seem to do it. I'm not quite sure how, but in you know the UK, the third parties come and they go and they get squeezed down. United States, they seldom get more than a couple of percent for the essentially game theory again, our good old friend and the first past the post election system and plurality voting. But that gives tremendous power to something like simple. Again, to make clear to our listeners, the idea is we have a club. The club has decided on a bunch of policies, right? And anyone who agrees with our club, we agree that we will preferentially support them. And by the way, anyone who disagrees with our policies, we're almost certainly not going to vote for. When the club gets big enough in a country like the United States or the UK, where there's often a lot of close elections, even a few million people will push a whole bunch of elections one way or the other. And look at the United States. Our Senate is 50-50 and there's a 10-vote margin in the House of Representatives. It wouldn't take much push in either direction to significantly change the partisan dynamics. So this is a big-ass club. Jim, you know, and it's it's exactly right. You know, you know. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, one of our supporters a few years ago, one of one of the elections we fought in the UK, he was sitting in one of these very marginal, tightly contested voters in the UK, and we got the first candidate to sign up, the Green Party candidate to sign up, I think, and uh, he was delighted. He rang me up and he said, "John, this is great because now we got them all by the balls." <laughs> And it's exactly that, you know, what, what, what is so marvelous about Simpol and why I remember that, that particular occasion, it was about 10 years ago now, is because it, it, it just shows how if we use the right tool, we have, we already have the power. You know, so many people feel completely disempowered by the political process and why bother and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when they actually get to understand the Simpol tool and how powerful it is, it's like, wow. You know, this is this is amazing. That was my reaction. I go, shit, this thing could work, right? You got to get it to a critical mass. I don't know where that is, but it may only be three, four percent, something like that. You know, the usual rule you think of fifteen percent. But I suspect in a country that's closely divided and has first past the post constitutional election framework, three, four, five percent ought to have a hell of a lot of leverage. That's right, Jim, and and, and you know, because in in a sense, because of destructive global competition and the polarization that it's created. That polarization on either side of, you know, left, right, tends to be very evenly matched, right? And so the margin of difference between the two, which Simpol can exploit, can be incredibly small or relatively small. So that that is a huge uh, leverage potential that we have. I was just thinking out loud here. I just want to throw out something. It just hit me as I was listening to you and thinking about this, which is possibly a flaw, but also a way to tune it for strength. If it turns out that almost all of your votes would have gone to the labor candidate anyway, it doesn't matter much. If, however, you have tuned your issue position such that you actually have something close to a balance from the incumbent parties, the power of the stick goes way up. 
Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, the 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 tighter, the more tightly contested an election is or a, a parliamentary seat, the more power we have per unit size. Yeah, the fewer simple supporters it takes to to swing it one way or the other, and therefore, um, you know, the, the the fewer it takes to the more the more power we have. But it's also more balanced you are between people who would otherwise vote for either party, the more power you have, I think. Well, yeah, 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 I think so. I think I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, in, in a sense, signing on to simple is like having two votes rolled into one. By signing on at any point in time, you, you, you're, you're getting your global vote and you're, you're putting pressure on your political representatives to sign up to, to implementing simple. But then when election day comes around, you get your national vote just like everybody else. You know, it's not a, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Yeah. Though, of course, to be credible, your people have to actually vote most of the time in the way that simple points. If it turns out that it's just a feel-good gesture and the people don't actually turn out and vote that way, well, it's a paper tiger. No, absolutely. As global problems become more and more acute, uh, I mean, look at COVID is another example. I think, you know, people are going to increasingly be voting very seriously um, or taking their simple commitment very, very seriously and taking their national vote perhaps a bit less seriously because they realize that the national vote actually doesn't count for much anymore. You know, so, so I think as time goes on, Jim, this is going to become increasingly serious. But, but let me just add another point to it, and that is from the point of view of politicians, we have some politicians who've signed up, you know, probably because they felt they had to, you know, to in order to they didn't want to lose their seats, you know. But many politicians have written to us and said, "Thank you so much for coming out with this idea because it it solves our problem." You know, they they are actually relieved that at last there is a political program out there that solves the the you know the DGC dilemma, which they're all stuck with because it's. Very often, it's, it's not that our politicians don't want to solve climate change or some of these, you know, wealth inequality. It's it's literally that destructive global competition means that they can't. And so, when something, you know, when they they learn about Simple, they're actually very happy to sign up. Not not all of them, uh, but but many of them are. You know, frankly, between you and me and the fence post, I've known a fair number of electoral politicians, and with some exceptions, you guys know who you are. Most of them ain't the sharpest knives in the drawer. <laughs> How many of them get this? This isn't hugely hard, but it requires kind of second order thinking to be able to, you know, sort of see how the simple hammer works. Have you found you can actually explain this to politicians and their flunkies? Well, we find actually that it's easier to explain it to politicians than it is to citizens. That I'd believe. Yeah. And I think the reason is, is that your politicians are confronted every day with this dilemma. You know, they've got uh, climate change pressing down on them. Um, you know, uh, protests from people like Extinction Rebellion and, and, and uh, other NGOs pressuring them to, for, to, to take action. And yet, on the other side, they, they've got to keep the economy competitive. And, and, you know, so I think politicians actually understand the dilemma quite well, generally speaking. And, um, you know, even those politicians on the right, who perhaps understand it even better, in the sense that, you know, they are all about keeping the nation competitive. And of course, with Simpol, if, if implementation is simultaneous, every nation's competitiveness, relative competitiveness stays the same. Nobody loses out. And so 
in a sense, Simpol has a lot to offer to the right as well as to the left. Yeah, that's why I suggest. I'm going to think hard about this. I may even write a simulation How about that. I think if it's indeed true that balancing it partisanly is critical to maximize the force, like it may be. But now, let's move on. So we have this very clever analysis of the generator function and a club to you know, basically leverage elected officials without having to start a party and without having to get a huge number, 4 or 5%. You got a big club. But to make this actually solve the generator function, the set of policy trade-offs have to be right. Could you talk a little bit about what you envision in terms of the policy-making process? Who does it? Who organizes it? You know, how do we know that groups working at the national level can work together with other simple groups across national lines? Talk about the mechanics of these policy trade-offs. Yeah, I will. Um, let me just, before I do that, Jim, let me just give you a little bit of a sketch of the evolution of Simpol as I, as, I, as I envisage or as we envisage it. So the idea really, of course, this, this voting mechanism that we, we were just talking about obviously can only work in democratic countries. It can't work in China or in, 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 uh, in non-democratic countries, obviously. And so the, the first question people would say is, well, yeah, but how are you going to get non-democratic nations on board? Well, our, our answer to that is that we want to get the ball rolling in democratic countries first, and then, depending on whether the United Nations process has any success or not, if it continues to fail, Simpol, I think, could then become, if you like, the, the, the predominant game in town when it comes to solving global problems. And then I think you, have the, you will have the incentive for non-democratic countries to sort of join, voluntarily join the process. Because of course they need they need solutions to global problems too. So that just outlines the evolution of the of the buy-in to the to the idea. Yeah, actually, I thought about that, and it, it may actually be easier to get the authoritarian countries in because you only have to negotiate with a couple of dudes, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You get Z or whatever hell his name is in China, right? And he's a you know a smart dude. He says, all right, you know, you guys have all your Americans and Brits and Frenchmen running around figuring policy out. When you got to sort of figure it out, come talk to me and let's go cut a deal. It may actually be surprising because if the idea of high dimensionality allowing trade-offs that work for everybody, kind of a Nash equilibrium, then it actually may be easier to deal with the autocrats than it is with the democracies. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Now, I mean, as far as the actual development of the policies themselves are concerned, Jim. Um, you know, like I said earlier, simple actually at the moment, it's it's an open book. We don't have any policies because we, you know, obviously this is a longer term process. It would be crazy to try to uh, define policies now uh, when simple might only get implemented in 10 years time or, or whatever. So the policy content of simple remains to be determined. And the process we envisage for that so it happens in two stages. So first of all, the first stage would, would only really start when you know, we'd already got the buy-in going in a number of nations in the way I described earlier. And, it, and, and you know, the, the, the process was known by the public and, and it was, it was you know, on the media radar. And at that point, you would start the first stage where in each individual country, you would have its own process where simple supporters would first of all define what are you know the, the top 10 priority issues for that country 
global issues for that country? And what are the top policies to solve those issues? And that process would be going on independently in other countries as well. Because, of course, every nation has a different perspective on what are the most important global issues. Um, not, not all nations are the same. So there needs to be a process the first, in the, that first stage of each nation actually defining, well, what are the top global issues for us? And what are the top 10 policy solutions for those issues? And so the, that's the, the, the first stage is a national stage. And then uh, once you've got enough buy-in from countries across the planet, you would then move to the global negotiation where the key issues would be sorted into SIMPOL 1, SIMPOL 2, SIMPOL 3, depending on um, you know, what, what, what can be agreed as the, the most prominent issues, then pulling them together into multi-issue packages and then negotiating the details. Uh, and then you would have implementation on a certain date. So, so that's very, very in brief. That is the outline. Actually, I forgot to send you, Jim, uh, a document called uh, what we call the information pack, which can be downloaded from our website. And that gives a sort of much more detailed outline of, of how that uh, process would, would be organized, by whom, uh, and so forth. But in brief, it's a two-stage process, first stage national second stage global. Yeah, one of the things I like about this a lot is it requires no constitutional changes. You can just do it, right? At least in the United States, you point out maybe Canada has a law against it, but in the book you said that, yeah, the candidates aren't supposed to be able to- Oh, I see, well, that, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, they have a law against um, uh, politicians signing, signing pledges near to election time. But as you know, Simpol actually works throughout the year. It, it, it works all the time. You know, so the fact that it, we're restricted from getting pledges from politicians three months before an election doesn't necessarily hurt the hurt us. It's not convenient, but it's not a it's not a deal breaker. Yeah, in the United States, that would be illegal. That would violate the First Amendment. So this is really interesting because it requires no constitutional changes. It requires nobody's agreement except the people that want to do it, which I love, right? This is classic self-organization. Now, presumably, you need some form of organization or at least constitution for the simple movement to allow it to self-organize and become a thing. Have you guys thought a little bit into its own operating machinery, how it works? Yeah. Um, I mean, we have a founding declaration and we have in the information pack document that I mentioned just now, Jim, there is a, a, a full breakdown of how we would be, how we're organized in each country. So all of that is, is, is out there. Yeah. It's a bit wordy to go into it now, but yes, that is all answered, at least as we envisage it evolving. Um, obviously, it will be for simple supporters in each country to actually decide whether they agree with that vision. You know, if they decide to do it in a slightly different way, that's up to them. Um, so it is very much a bottom-up, like you say, it's a very much a bottom-up democratic process in, in democratic countries. And I think, I think the point about, you know, not needing any change of constitution in any country is vital because simple it's really like a citizen-driven global treaty. You know, it's it's not a, a world government, God forbid. 
or, or anything like that. It is it is a pragmatic global agreement driven by citizens, driving their politicians and governments into that agreement, and um, nothing more. And we don't need anything more, like you said. And that's really cool because, you know, I got some of my pet reforms, don't all of us thinkers, you know, one of mine is liquid democracy, right? Which is essentially delegative proxy democracy. And it's really neat. It might be the answer, but it would be essentially impossible to happen within, say, the constitutional framework of a country like the United States or the UK until, you know, after the revolution. One of the things I love about Simple is that we can start doing it tomorrow afternoon. Well, that's right, and we we've already started. We've already, you know we we're already doing it, you know, and and it's working, you know. Very cool. Now, though, it is interesting that you don't yet have a payload, right? You have a process, but no payloads, no agreed upon issues, even at the national level. From a timing perspective, because you know, frankly, for institutional wonks like us, it's kind of cool to talk about process, but to talk to my brother about it or something, we better have some policies to lay out there. When do you expect there to be, you know, enough action at, say, one of these national levels to at least have a first draft national simple 1.0 that people can take a look at and say, these people are fucking nuts or, hmm, these guys aren't bad? <laughs> well, well, the first thing we really want to do, Jim, actually, is to get a, a, a really thorough university study done on you know, mixing two policies together. So, um, you know, like a climate, you know, a, a climate agreement and a global uh, wealth or currency transactions tax, you know, what what would be, um, what would the level of the tax need to be in order to reduce emissions by 70 or 80 percent or whatever? And then uh, a number of scenarios about how the proceeds from the tax might be distributed between different countries so that we get a, a feasibility study done, if you like, um, on, on this multi-issue um, simultaneously implemented um, approach, and so one, one of the things I, you know, one of our projects for this year is to get such a university study done. You know, I think that would help to, uh, as you say, get get the practicalities. You know, to start getting the idea of what policies could actually be implemented simultaneously onto the agenda. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Why not just do it? Why deal with a bunch of goddamn academics? Why not just round up twenty thousand people and go to town? Well, because <laughs> well, because like me, I you know I'm just a hairy ass paper salesman, Jim. You know I don't know anything about policy development. You know we've got to get some some professionals into this because I think to get to have the credibility, uh, we really need that kind of expertise. I think to be taken seriously. What's his name out at Stanford who works on deliberative democracy? Might be an interesting guy to talk to. Fishkin, James Fishkin. He's he's an interesting guy. Okay, James. Well, you know, th th this is, you know, actually, I, I'm, I'm so delighted to, to have this interview with you, Jim, because you've got connections to these kind of people. They've never heard of me. They've, they've probably never heard of Simpol. And, and so we really do need connections to people like that who can open doors to the right kind of people so that we can get these studies done, so that we can actually start putting some flesh on the bones, you know. I agree. No, you know, me, I'm a bias towards action guy. You know, I might talk to an academic for get it done in 90 days or something, but man, I'm feeling like if one wasn't completely a buffoon, you could actually make this work. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm actually quite a cautious guy and I, I'm very enthusiastic about Simpol, just like you are, Jim, now. 
and it's not that I think that it's necessarily the best thing since sliced bread. It's more a question of have we got a better idea? You know, and in the, in the 20 years that I've been doing this, I, I haven't seen a better one. You know, and so we kind of keep going. But I think if if you can help us open doors to the right people, I think we could really get this thing motoring really quickly. Yeah, and it is true. We do need to think hard about how hard will it be to get multi-dimensional trade-offs that are actually Nash equilibria. We know there's no guarantee in a high-dimensional space, but it's certainly possible. No, that's 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 right. I think I think the other thing to take into account though is that, you know, and this is the way cooperation works is that, you know, the Nash equilibrium also depends on how high the water is up around our necks, right? That is true. <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, you know, that's, that's kind of the way cooperation works. It's only when, it's only when the water's right up around our necks that we think, shit, we've got to work together. That's a very good point. In rut talk, you'd say that that's a Nash equilibrium under coevolutionary contexts where the coevolutionary isn't going too well. Well, you're smarter with words than I am. I don't know about that. I've got a lot of good jargon I've accumulated over the word. That's British understatement. <laughs> this has been great so far. So let's go on to the next and last topic. We're getting near our time check here. And this is something you hit on pretty hard. Well, this is an extraordinarily clever institutional invention. I really, you know, I say that honestly. I'm impressed. You also, though, make a pretty strong point that it isn't going to reach its potential if we don't also elevate the perspective of the people, that we have to find a new way to think outside of our parochial thoughts. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, this, this is the evolution of our consciousness, our understanding, our awareness from what I call the, the nation-centric level to the, to, the, to the level we need to really understand the, the, why global cooperation is now so vital, which is the world-centric level of consciousness. And so in integral theory, for example, or in spiral dynamics, Jim, that might be like yellow turquoise uh, in integral theory. Um, you know, I don't know what the colors are there, but it's, it's that world-centric level, that integral uh, vision logic level of consciousness. But it's not that everybody needs to get up to that level, but that a critical mass of us uh, get up to that level so that we can get this simple idea rolling strongly enough that people will then just join in. Because I think it's, a, it's also kind of like a learning by doing process. When people, like I, like I said, that guy who said, now we've got them all by the balls, you know, when people see how powerful this process is, they're going you know, they're, they're to jump on and kind of learn in the process. So I think it's it, the important thing right now is to get a a really strong core group of second tier integral or you know turquoise thinkers, whatever meta modern, whatever you want to call it, um, and and coalesce around this idea to really get it moving. Because um, maybe we can come onto conscious evolution if we still have time, but you know unless we coalesce around some kind of plan like like this or something else. We are not going to make it. Yep. And, you know, as some people realize, it'll probably have to be a vanguard that does the work to figure out the institutional structure and maybe even the policy trade-offs. But as I like to keep pointing out, we need some Benjamin Franklins, not just Thomas Jefferson's, right? Credit that one to Brett Weinstein, by the way, talking about our failed attempt to build a political party, right? We were great thinkers. We weren't such good communicators. 
Jim Brett is another person I've been trying to get in touch with uh, to talk to him about this because as an evolution biologist, he, he would, he, I think he would get this straight away. Yeah. And when I was reading it, I said, I'm going to send it to him straight away. He's a good friend and I'll connect you guys up. Oh, great. Great. Actually, I, I met him. I met him at the Rebel Wisdom Conference last last year in London, and I had a, a quick chat with him. I gave him my card, but I don't think he. Uh, well, he didn't. He didn't contact me. So I think if you can, if you can make that connection, uh, that would be good. And I mean, it's, it, it's actually you know the whole evolutionary context. I think is so important, uh, Jim, because uh, you know I think right now people are scared. They're lost. They're they're, they're panicking in a way. Um, you know, because we're being hit by all these global problems. And if, if people don't understand the evolutionary context of, of why we are where we are and where evolution wants us to go, of course, they will panic. But what, what we try to do with Simpol is, is to show that, that, you know, we are in a process where we've gone from prehistoric families to tribes to, to then middle-aged small states to still larger nation states, you know, Competition has driven cooperation at ever higher levels, and and you know now we are at, at the global level, where we don't have global cooperation, but we do have a global economy, and so that that mismatch is causing all of this negative fallout and chaos and 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 um, global threats, uh, and so you know we need to see that, that that global cooperation is where evolution wants to take us. So while we feel scared and threatened, at least we know where we're headed. Because if people don't know where we're headed, we really are lost. Yep. Yeah. The argument's pretty straightforward. I'll just restate it for the audience. Smack me if I get it wrong. That destructive global competition is a generator function of many of our problems and keeps us from being able to solve them, particularly ones that have global scale, such as climate change. We have institutional gridlock every place for a whole bunch of reasons having to do with game theory also, and that something like Simpol, which is so clever about it, it doesn't require the constitutional stuff. It doesn't require creating a global state, which I had a very good, interesting guy on the podcast the other day, Anatole Levin, who argued that only nationalism can solve climate change. I know, I know him. I know him. Interesting. At some sense, what he's arguing is against what you're saying, but in another sense, he's not. No, 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 no. He's concerned that the time it would take to build strong global institutions is way longer than we have. And so the beauty of Simpol is you can get the effect of global institutions without actually having to build any real heavy ones. Exactly. And he's, he's actually somebody, because I, I, I read his book, uh, which, was, which was really good, and I contacted him, and he, he likes the idea of Simpol. Uh, I think for exactly the reason you're talking about, Jim, is that it's based on nation states. It's based on cooperation, global cooperation being designed in such a way that it's in every nation's self-interest. And so that that chimes very closely with what he is saying. Yeah, very good. Yeah, his episode will be coming out two days from today, which will be about two weeks before this episode comes out to so the people who are listening. Would have been fun to go down the evolutionary consciousness road, but I think we're pretty much out of time. I'm an old dude. I get tired after a while. So <laughs> I found about 90 minutes is about as much time as I can give my full Jim Rutcho push. So if you have any final thoughts, let's hear them and then we'll wrap her up. 
Well, no, Jim, I'm just ever so grateful. For, I mean, I'm just you know, delighted that you like the idea. And, you know, um, if, if there's any help you can give us by, by um, you know, putting us in touch with the right people, that would be wonderful. The only other thing to say, of course, is please sign on to Simpol. It just takes a couple of minutes at uh, simpol.org, S-I-M-P-O-L.org. Thanks. And as always, there'll be links to that and everything else we referenced at the episode page at jimrutshow.com. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.